0: Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert.
1: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here today. My name is Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with my guest, Miriam Springle, uh, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Miriam and I have known each other for uh, uh, quite a while. We're both museum consultants. uh, Miriam is a consultant internationally to museums and other cultural institutions based in Sarasota, Florida. Miriam is president of uh, Springle Consulting. And she's also held senior-level positions at uh, the Smithsonian and also the John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art. So welcome, Miriam. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, thanks so much, Carol. It's a delight to be here. Miriam, uh, I understand that you have just returned from Rio de Janeiro, uh, where you attended the International Council of Museums conference.
2: Yes, it was uh, uh, just a wonderful and a terrific experience in a great country.
1: Oh, I bet, I bet. Uh, so, what what kinds of uh, trends did you did you see? What What were your uh, um, uh, observations that you can share with us today?
2: You, you know, it was um, you. What, one of the great things about going to these international conferences is that it helps you place museums that you're familiar with in a context of what other institutions um, might be doing. And I'm going to say that two of the top things that I heard talked about in Rio was um, museums as social engines and museums as places for healing. And we tend to talk a lot about in Europe and the United States as museums, as places, as economic engines for communities. And that certainly was talked about as well. But there was a greater emphasis on the social aspects of museums. And I think that that comes for a variety of reasons. Um, But but it leads us to thinking about museums in, in some new and some interesting ways. Um, museums as, as economic engines, we tend to think of the great museums of the world, such as the, the Louvre, which, um, in Paris, which now has, uh, programs, um, has a brand new museum in, in the north of France, is uh, developing a new museum in Abu Dhabi and has programs around the world. Or we think of the Guggenheim, which has um, its alternative campus in, in Bilbao and is looking at one in Helsinki. Um, and we think of the the grand expansion going on in the Middle East in Qatar and Abu Dhabi. But in places like Rio de Janeiro, there is also a huge growth in museums. And in Rio, what's very clear was that in preparation for a whole raft of international events that are happening in Rio in the coming few years, the World Cup, the huge TED Global event, the Summer Olympics in 2015, Rio de Janeiro um, is opening Four major new museums, and these are economic engines as we traditionally think of as as economic engines. And, for example, the Museo de Arte just opened in a brand new, absolutely beautiful uh, building. There's a new Museum of Image and Sound. There's a new new City Museum and a Museum of Tomorrow that are um, in the plans and a Maritime Museum that's in the works. Um, the Maritime Museum is actually already under construction with um, a building by uh, Kal- Kalavatara, whose name I'm mispronouncing, but who has done some of the great um, buildings recently. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have little tiny museums that are opening up, and they are about both social and cultural development, as well as economic development. And for example, there's a series of new, very small, what are referred to as eco-museums on the Amazon River near the mouth of uh, the Amazon, um, just outside of Belem. Um, And... Eco-museums is a a particular type type of museum. It's a movement that began in France in the 1970s, and it acknowledges that the whole community is a museum and that you can't pull the objects out of the community and put them in a building under a glass box, that the, the meaning of the objects is in daily use. It is the landscape that is as important as the objects. And so... These um, this new eco museum on three little islands in Amazonia um, has given the opportunity for a whole for the residents there to essentially develop ecotourism, but an ecotourism that is absolutely grounded in sharing their culture and their knowledge. So the work begins with researchers who create what they call a biomap and who identify both cultural and natural resources. And um, people can then – the local residents can then use that and with advice from others can create literally a a source of economic um, gain that – at the same time preserves and promotes culture, which I think is a a different way of thinking of museums as as economic engines um, and leads us into what I think I, what I certainly saw in presentations from around the world that I was hearing, which is the role of museums as engines for social change. And that ranges in all kinds of ways, but I was very struck by a presentation by um, the Director of Education at the Fine Arts Museum in Sao Paulo in in Brazil. And uh, in the United States, we don't talk, we, we talk a lot about our rights, but the right to culture is not something that is in our vocabulary. And in a lot of other countries, it is. And for example, it stems from the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights. And one of the inalienable human rights is um, the right to culture, to participate in cultural life. And in Brazil, the Brazilian Ministry of Culture has defined what it means to participate in cultural life. And it includes rights that are to um, uh, the, the right to free creation. And by free, it's not a financial free, but it is an I can do what I believe is important free. And the right to free access, to free dissemination, um, to participation in discussion, the right to authorship. In other words, if I as an individual have created something, it is mine, it doesn't belong to somebody else. Um, and the right to cultural exchange and so uh, we we heard about examples in which um the the what is essentially a one of the major fine arts museum in in Brazil and in Latin America the fine arts museum in Sao Paulo develops programs um and certainly museums in the US are doing these kinds of programs which uh, just a for instance which which really struck me and it struck me in part because of vocabulary Um, they're not saying they work with the homeless. They are working with street dwellers. And I've been using on that word and it means something completely different than homeless or vagrant, which is the term that tends to be used in, in the U.S. But these are programs um, that are long-term. There are consistent interactions. Uh, the the street dwellers are in the museum once a month. And over the course of three years, this led to an exhibition in the museum of their own work of art. And that, I think, um, while we have examples like this in the United States. They are not grounded in the same way in cultural policy, and and that's what I mean by one of the trends I'm seeing is museums as engines of, of social change.
1: Yeah, let me stop you there, Miriam, because you know the question that that uh, and I and I think you're actually beginning to answer it, and you did answer it with your the example of of the uh, street dwellers is. It, How does envisioning your your mission or your purpose as being a social engine or an engine for social change um, versus seeing your you know identifying yourself as an economic engine? How does that then lead a museum to make different kinds of decisions about where they put their resources? Well, I I think it's it's
2: implicit and it's. That once you have made that kind of decision, it's not that you no longer do the scholarship and the research and um, all of all of those. I'm going to say all of those more traditional things that we associate with with museums, but it's that you start to think in different ways how you deploy programming, how you deploy interactions between the museum and individuals. Uh, Another example that I think really underscores this is that um, Jorge Melguizo, who was the Secretary of Citizen Culture in Medellín, Colombia, and I think that's just a fascinating title. So he's not a museum person and he's not a museum director, but a Secretary for Citizen Culture was responsible for the cultural life of Medellín. And 10, 15 years ago, as I think we all might recall, Medellín was the heart, was the center, I'm not going to use the word heart, was the center of um, drug and cocaine production. And it was an extraordinarily violent um, city. And Jorge Melchizo describes basically a culture of violence where children do not play outside because people are shot left and right. And where that level of violence really totally changed the city. Um, And Essentially, that's a city that basically said enough. This is enough. This violence, this very deep corruption, has to stop. And as a government entity, they made the decision that arts and cultural life was what was going was one of the tools to make that change. And so, government funding for culture went from, um, as he described it, 0.2 percent of the city's budget to five percent. But what that results in is is something very powerful. Um, For instance, um, and I'm going to get to museums in in a moment, but there's some other examples that are amazingly powerful. Libraries were deliberately built on what had been prison sites, and they were kept open literally from 8 o'clock in the morning into the evening because children had no place to go because it was unsafe to walk from home to school. And there was no place to gather as kids outside of school hours, because it wasn't safe. So the library became that place. Then another example is that, is of a neighborhood center that was placed on top of a dump. So where you went to put your trash, became a building, a neighborhood center, a place that was safe and open. And from a museum point of view, this is this, I think, is just an amazingly beautiful quote. But as secretary for citizen culture, he said, if we can spend 40 million resurfing streets, why can't we spend 40 million fixing the holes in our hearts? And museums became free. And attendance went through the roof so that instead of saving your money for this to become a big deal family event on a weekend, going to a museum becomes something where you can stop in for a moment. You can go look at two or three works of art. You can go experience two or three exhibitions and then leave and then come back the next day or the next week or the next month. And culture becomes much more embedded and the culture of museums becomes much more embedded in, in your life. So that I think is a real example, this Medellín Colombia example of how you use museums and museums within a broader community context to really make a change. And of course, that's an, the, the Medellín example is an amazingly powerful example because Medellín is now a transformed city. And it's examples like this that have communities around the world uh, rethinking the role of museum and the way in which museums uh, and, and the importance and the value of museums. In in Rio de Janeiro, and we were in Rio, so um, we heard lots about examples in, in Rio, but in, in the province of Rio de Janeiro only, There are 50 new museums that have been created in the last few years. Um, These museums range from the great big museums that international visitors are going to want to go see, um, particularly when all those international visitors come for for all the international events in Rio, to the much smaller museums that range from small museums in the favelas, and I think we've both i have all heard the, the term favela, which is the, the very poor neighborhoods in Rio de Janeiro. And while international visitors can go on tours of the favela, where you go with a guide and you are, quote-unquote, protected and safe to go see what a favela is like, these museums do not have the aspiration of becoming major cultural destinations. They have the aspiration of being a place where people in the community can tell their story can preserve their heritage, and can preserve their culture. And um, these are just very powerful examples, I think, of the range of how we are redefining what a museum is. Our traditional definition is that it's a place that's big, that's grandiose, and there's been a lot of work around the world to make museums more welcoming to a broader range of audience. But this is also uh, a discussion to, to make museums that come out of communities that are much more grassroots oriented.
1: Yes, and, uh, and, and I think also, just to interrupt you for a minute, I think it means that these are institutions who are looking at, so, at social change and looking at their local community as opposed to perhaps just looking uh, or, or validating themselves as economic engines, which might lead them to different kinds of, of activities. I'm going to stop you here. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, more with Miriam Springle.
3: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that
2: have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carroll's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carroll, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you.
1: That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, VoiceAmerica.com.
3: Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and we'll give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Hey this is Carol Bossert, and I am here today with Miriam springle and Miriam and I have been discussing some of the trends that she's been uh, noticing, uh, particularly as she's just returned from the International Council of Museums in Rio de Janeiro and of course just Having had an opportunity to go to Rio, I'm very jealous, Miriam. But uh, but more importantly, I think you're you're making some very interesting and very important points that uh, uh, U.S. museums uh, need to be taking note of as well. And that is sort of this difference between uh, being motivated t- to by economic. Uh, uh identifying yourself as an economic engine and being motivated by identifying yourself as a social engine, an engine for social and civic change and and that's
2: once you frame it that way Carol, you end up at, and most you end up thinking about your museum in a very different kind of way and most museums, cannot afford to be one or the other. In other words, this is not an and or argument. This is an and argument. Um, and, the, and in many ways, you can think of it as a as a being on a, on a spectrum and how much of an economic engine are you and how much of a ch- social change engine are you. But in some ways, when you marry the two together, you, you can make some really profound differences. And I think that the concept of the Eco Museum which is a broadening of the definition of museums from the building that houses culture to the community, and that the entire community, including the farms, the agricultural plot, um, the fishing boats, that all of these are part of the community's heritage and the way in which you express yourself as, as a culture. And uh, another example that I was really fascinated by is what is um, a, a small house museum in Armenia. Um, it is the Hovanis Tumanian. Hovanis Tumanian is is uh, an Armenian nineteenth um, century scholar. thinks that he did was collect fairy tales um, from Armenia and this is his uh his uh, from what i gather this is this was his home and so this museum's mission is to preserve um the heri- his heritage um and part of that heritage is folk tales and the museum started to realize that the oral retelling of folk tales was being lost in armenia because instead of orally retelling a folktale, parents were reading books, and they might be reading books to their children that were by Hovanus Tumanian, but it was a reading act instead of an oral, you've remembered the story and you're retelling the story act. So because preserving that heritage is part of their mission. And part of what I'm fascinated by is that this is an intangible heritage. We tend to think of museums as being places of objects, but this is a place that is about preserving storytelling. They started a festival, which started as a small festival to encourage people to to retell to their children, to whoever was listening. a um, a fairy tale, and to tell it in a local dialect. Um, And this festival started out as a small local festival, and it has morphed now, from what I understand, into an international festival in which people of Armenian descent um, compete in the telling of folk tales, and they're using Skype, and they're using online, and people come together and listen to the telling of the stories. And then many of the finalists come together at this historic house museum in Armenia. And there is then, and it is deliberately an evening festival because folk tales are told at bedtime at sunset. And there are, and I'm not going to tell you what they are because I'm not um, a literature expert, but there are clear uh, definitions of what a fairy tale, and I apologize I've been using the term folktale and fairy tale interchangeably and that's my mistake because these are fairy tales not folk tales. Um, but so there are very clear uh, parameters as to what is a fairy tale as opposed to a folk tale and so these stories have to have the elements of being a fairy tale And what's happened is that this oral tradition, which is also appropriately written down, but which comes out of an oral tradition, is very much being revived, and not simply being revived in Armenia, from what I understood, but being revived among people of Armenian descent around the world. So that was just, to me, that's not so much... I know that's clear economic engine or that's clear social change, but that is clear preservation of culture and a museum being proactive in not just preserving a traditional culture that comes out of its mission, but creating culture. Because as people tell and retell fairy tales, um, they are now moved from an organization of cultural preservation to cultural creation.
1: You know, Miriam, that... That is a fantastic example and a wonderful story, and it makes me want to go to Armenia uh, to participate. But it also strikes me that this is a, a good anecdote for one of the challenges that that uh, we face in this country, and that is of the historic house museum. Uh, we have lots of these smaller institutions that uh, are often you know, because they're, they're a home, so they are sprinkled within the community, but so many of them uh, that I know you and I have worked with are just struggling uh, to find identity, and uh, uh, they're almost dismissed within the larger museum world because, you know, let's face it, not a whole lot of people are going there, and they're not real economic engines. But it, it seems to me that they are the ones that could be posed so well to Provide this kind of of uh, 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 cultural heritage or cultural touchstone for their local community, and if they can do that without having to apologize, saying you know we're, you, our, our our topic our, our our focus is is not national or international, and I think that's some sometimes where where we uh, we get hung up is that if we don't have a great big international mission where we continue to apologize, that, that what we're doing in our local community is just not grand enough for anyone to take notice. And I, I think that
2: that um, comment's really important because you're absolutely right. The National Trust for Historic Preservation has raised the question of how many more house museums do we need? um and 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 it's it's not that there is not a deep deep commitment to preserving those buildings and to preserving the history that those buildings represent but how many as as a friend of mine um, who is the director of a museum said you know how many recreated period bedrooms do i really want to see they all have a bed they all have a basin for washing they all have a wardrobe and yeah, there's variations as I look at them over time, but how many of these do I really want to see? And, and you're right that this is a profound example of how you take what it is that that house museum stands for and use it as a jumping off point for creating culture that is vibrant, relevant and important uh, today. Well-
1: well, what it's doing is it's putting the people back in in the house, right? Uh, right. Uh, the the problem with the idea of well how many four poster beds can you can you talk about and did Washington really sleep here is that the the people who lived in that community are often overlooked and so it's a refocusing of not only your mission because you are trying to uh, preserve something and in fact something that's intangible like these fairy tales but you are also just trying to communicate. Through the objects uh some some greater truth of uh, that is relevant to the people that live in that community today rather than just deifying uh, or or even objectifying the the rich person who lived in the house because unfortunately those are the homes that we preserve, or you know talking about a bed because we all have beds
2: right right, and the 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 thing that's that's really um, interesting to me is that there are also museums who reinvent themselves. In other words, there are museums who start off saying we're going to be about community. And then there are museums who don't necessarily start off that way, but who become that way. Um, one of the examples I heard about at the ICOM conference is um, a museum in South Africa called the Iziko Museum, um, and they really are, um, and, and they have historic houses as part of the properties that they are responsible for, and from what I was gathering is they are really positioning themselves to be a place of healing, a place of memory, um, and a place of conciliation um and and the 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 one of the speakers at the conference um reminded us that uh, tony morrison in i think in the early 90s and i'm not going to ha- i'm not going to be able to quote tony morrison but basically um reminded us that we cannot forget the horrors in our past but that we have to think of them in a way that we can digest them so that the our collective memory can lead towards change. So in other words, we can't remember all the horror all the time, but we have to remember it and not let it go so that we can use it as a way for healing, for conciliation. And frankly, whether you're in South Africa or whether you're anywhere else in the world, including the United States, we have moments in our past or long periods in our past that today we wish could be different. And so uh, museums um, play a role in that and look at ways in which they can make a a change for that. And I think that uh, the examples of the museums that do that really powerfully um, are the museums that are part of a collective called the Sites of Conscious, which are the museums that are places that talk about and are explicit about the fact that these are places of memory and an example from South Africa is of course the Robben Island Museum which was the island that was the prison system in which Nelson Mandela was imprisoned along with many other people but how do you use those spaces that have profound collective memories and implications as places of healing and And whether it's healing or recollection doesn't make much difference. Um, The historic house museums in the south in the United States today, and there's some examples in the north as well, that are really powerful are the places that acknowledge the big plantation house which is the the one that we tend to visit but also the slave quarters and the history of what happened and the the moving from and i think in the U, the us a place that has been amazingly powerful to me at a personal level is kingsley plantation which is a national park service site outside of jacksonville florida um where the enslaved today have names we trace their history. We talk about them as individuals, as opposed to a mass of humanity who did the work and about whom we don't say very much. But wait, let's talk a lot about what happened in the big plantation house. And so both around the world and in the United States, the historic house museums, in many cases, not, not in enough cases, perhaps quite yet, but in many cases are like this example from um, our, Armenia, um, are rethinking, retooling, are experimenting because from what I gather, the Hovanist Tumanian Museum did not intend to start an international fairy tale festival. But that's where they ended up.
1: Yeah, that's where they were led. You know, that going back to these these institutions of, of healing, uh, I'm I'm really interested in this trend, uh, particularly some of the examples that that you may have uh, encountered internationally, because they're. Uh, it seems to me that that one of the challenges, uh, facing some of the, these, uh, uh, world museums, uh, as you say, sites of conscience is that the atrocity is pretty new. I mean, you still have, uh, you know, um, in, in talking with Elaine Gurian recently, and we were talking about the Holocaust Museum, uh, the challenge for, for her, uh, was that there were still met so many survivors at the time of the museum's uh, inception who all had their own way of of looking at it uh, who who uh, who were who were still probably in some ways processing their own hurt and healing and the museum helped them do that and we may be uh, encountering some of those those challenges and bumps as 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 the uh, the new 9/11 museum opens. Uh, since that is still such a raw memory for so many of us, and I and I wonder, then you know, internationally, you just talked about uh, this this institution in, in South Africa. Are you seeing more and more? Um, you know, what is the trend for these uh, uh, these these sites of conscience or these sites of healing in terms of the of the time between the atrocity and the memorializing?
2: You know, I I think the answer is that it depends, but but the sense that museums have a proactive role to play and that museums can be places where discussion can happen, where you can talk about things that are difficult, but that you have to be ready to do so. I'll I'll give an example from a a small historical society I was um, speaking with recently, and they this is a community um, with a huge huge influx of immigrants of a different ethnic group um, in the last five years enormous the community is transformed and we were talking about um, some long term thinking for this for this small museum and they they basically said you know we we are working really hard to make this immigrant community feel welcome but we also have to acknowledge that we are in a community with deep racism and that we preserve a heritage that represents people for whom this racism is real It's part of it it's you know ask them to open their mouth and you're going to hear it so how do you as a small institution with a very limited budget and i think the the staff very smartly said you know we aren't going to make grown-ups talk to each other who don't want to talk to each other but we can when we have school groups come through the museum we can talk about heritage and culture that acknowledges the heritage and culture of this community and since these kids are brand new migrant kids it's not their heritage and culture, but we can talk about the heritage and culture that is embedded in the ground we're standing on and the heritage and culture that the kids are walking through the door with. And that's where we can make the bridges. So every every museum has to find their own way of doing it, and whether it's a major international atrocity or whether it is just the incipient stuff that runs through every community, It's both there.
1: I think that's a really good point, and we're going to uh, come back in just a few minutes uh, and hear a little bit more from Miriam about some of the other trends that she has been uh, uh, observing. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to The Museum Life. We'll be back in a minute.
3: There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. News. news. Opinions. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned in to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life
1: welcome back. This is Carol Bossert and I'm here today with my colleague and friend Miriam Springle who's been sharing uh, with us some of the trends that she observed at the recent International Council of Museums. And before I forget, uh, you can continue this conversation with me or with Miriam. Uh, You can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com and you can also reach Miriam at Springle Consulting. S-P-R-I-N-G-U-E-L consulting.com. Miriam, could you share with us a couple of the other uh, trends that uh, you observed when you were at ICOM? Sure. Some of the some of the other things that I that I saw and observed obviously
2: relate back to what we talked about, such as um, people are really working hard to better understand why visitors come to museums. But I think that the the trend or the shift is that. There's also the question of we're really, museums are working really hard to understand why communities value them. Another thing that I saw at ICOM is that there is really increasing discussion about issues that affect museums across international borders, from um, uh, theft um, to intellectual property. Um, and then that in some ways relates to the fact that museums are making their collections and their knowledge and expertise increasingly accessible and available online and through social media, through apps. And that, of course, makes those collections accessible internationally. There's there's also, um, people are working much more across disciplines, in other words, history and art working together, or art and science working together, or uh, theater working with art museums, or with science museums, we're seeing a lot more of that, I think and then um an important trend is the increasing professionalization of the museum field um training programs uh that bring people from one country to work in another country or to learn from from others in another country but by- uh the the notion that to be a museum worker you simply had to know about history or about science to be a museum worker and this is becoming much more this is becoming true globally not just in Europe and the United States you will also have to have training in uh the the specific ways in which museum work museums work and ways in which museums are different from other institutions so that's kind of my my quick list of um, you know much more internationalism, it's not simply that I was at an international conference, it's that museums, even uh, smaller and mid-sized museums are thinking about the, the international and the global stage and the repercussions of that uh, much, much more today than they were five or six years ago. And I think that that's gonna increase.
1: Oh, that's the. Those are all very positive trends. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this working across disciplines because I I find that fascinating. And, and in my uh, my international uh, uh, tr- travels, I find that happening much more uh, when I visit a, a different country than I find in the U.S. And I'm I'm not quite sure why that is. Uh, do you have any any thoughts? I you know I do, and I think that in some ways the English
2: language is not a metaphorical language. Whereas Spanish, Portuguese, French, and I'm not going to comment on the Asian languages because I don't have enough experience to say anything intelligent, but I have enough experience, um, in, in the Romance languages and in being bilingual and, mm-hmm. and fluent in French and having a working knowledge of Spanish to, to simply say that these are language, languages where speaking in metaphors is part of the way you construct your thought process. So that then a science museum that looks at visual images to help you understand, Um, one one of the the speakers basically looked at, one of the keynote speakers um, looked at science museums around the world. And in Latin America, it really, using metaphor, to explain science is part of the way you explain science, because there's a real profound understanding that to get scientific concepts, you're not just getting them at a language level. And I'm going to say that in the United States, we, we when we speak American, as opposed to English, we get that in the art museum, you don't, you, you can't just use words to talk about a work of art. I don't think we get that in the same way when it comes to a science museum. In other words, I think we all verbalize and can say, gosh, if a musician could have said it with words, he would have been a poet. If a painter could have said it with words, he would have been a novelist. We don't say that in the sciences. And, and so I think that in Latin America and in some of the European countries, the notion that um, that you use that you use beauty, that you use aesthetics, that you use repeated images of a spiral, for example, to explain a scientific concept, is embedded in the way people think. And that's why we see some differences in the way concepts and ideas are presented and explained in in some of the science museums. Um, uh, another example that I heard about is at the Athens University Museum, which is a science museum. And there, there, um, the person describing, um, that particular program was really clear about saying, we're not a museum that's particularly interesting to kids. Um, you know, we have 19th century scientific equipment that's kind of obsolete and isn't hugely exciting, but they... Have, it's not simply that they have used theater, which a lot of museums are doing, but they've taken it to one more extension and they've used puppetry to talk about scientific concepts. And don't think don't think Sesame Street, which is what we tend to think of as puppetry in the United States. Um, the the tradition of of puppetry in other parts of the world and in Greece in particular is is very deep and is part of the storytelling tradition. And in puppetry, there is an inherent suspicion of disbelief because the inanimate object becomes animate and If you look at really good, strong puppetry, that piece of cloth, that shadow on a stick has a life. And so they they are using small stick puppet stages in the galleries in incredibly sophisticated ways to teach scientific concepts and to get students to think about what it means to be a daring scientist, a brave scientist, a scientist that breaks new ground, um, and that's a, that's very different than here's a scientific tool and here's what was discovered with it. Um, it it's a very different way of engaging students in the work of science.
1: And yes, and I was going to say, and it, it also does something that science museums have a real challenge with, and that is putting the human back into the scientific experience. We get so caught up with the with the objects and the facts uh, whether the fact is tangible or intangible that we forget that people do science and that science is really a human endeavor uh, just just as art is and
2: i, I that's that's a really important um, comment and I, I think it's fascinating that this this the Athens University Museum um, uses not humans to put the people back in science but animated objects that come to life and I, I think there are other examples of puppetry having been used in museum and i think an example that's familiar to many who work in museums in the u.s was the boston children's museum using puppets to talk about disabilities because we don't dare ask somebody in a wheelchair what it's like to be in a wheelchair puppets in a wheelchair we ask the puppet because the puppet's not a person and before we know it we're having a conversation with a puppet of right. lava cloth and that of course is why puppetry as an art form is so strong so powerful spans the globe and manifests itself in different ways in different cultures but I find it fascinating that a culture that uses and it's those those stick shadow puppets used something similar as interpretation in a museum um, I, I think that that's, that was just a really interesting example. And, of course, the, the bigger trend that that w- relates to is both working across disciplines as well as better understanding communication with visitors. And in the U.S. and in European museums, we do a lot of visitor studies, and we, we now have whole visitor, oh. Um, you know, a, a, a new discipline within the museum discipline, which is about visitor studies, which is really important and which has helped us understand visitors much better. And in some ways, p- part of what I was seeing um, as I listened to colleagues in this in this conference is that yes, we need to do those evaluative studies, but sometimes we also just need to look at human emotion. And at how people connect with the objects, the culture, and the heritage that is embedded in our museums. And that sometimes that's what reveals those really f- powerful moments of connecting in, in museums.
1: It's almost as if we have, uh, here in the U.S., we may have gotten to a level of maturity in our museums and a level of professionalism that is really important. On the other hand, it sort of is soul-sucking and uh, possibly uh, puts us too much in our heads and not enough in our hearts. Uh, it sounds as if the uh, the icom conference had an awful lot of heart and emotion and and, and passionate uh, examples going on you know that's a really
2: good summary i don't know that i would have said it this way I, as a matter of fact i wouldn't have said it this way but yes i i heard i really heard and and there were a lot of um uh, case studies that were examples of course we were in rio so brazilian museums were showcasing their work that's one of the reasons you host an international conferences and it's an opportunity to put your work on the world stage and and passion and heart are two characteristics that i i i would say i heard over and over and over again um that that Museum workers, and and yes, so so that this this trend that I was also notice noticing of increased professionalization of museum workers, I think you make a really good point. Is that yes, we need to professionalize because understanding how to preserve objects, how to reach out to audiences, how to market yourself, how to do budgets, um, all of that is critically important. But ultimately. If you're going to communicate with audiences and you're really going to work with people, and as you said, putting people back into the equation, then it really has to come out of a sense of passion and out of a sense of commitment to the individuals who you're, trying to, who you're working with.
1: Well, Mir- Miriam, I think that that is a wonderful place to leave our conversation today uh, and, a, and a great point to uh, remind all of our uh, museum colleagues, both museum goers and museum uh, developers. Again, Miriam, thank you so much for being on the show today. You can reach Miriam at SpringleConsulting.com. You can always reach me at CarolBossertServices.com. Again, this is The Museum Life. I'm Carol. Carol. Carol Bossert, and I look forward to having another great conversation next week.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? Thank you.